When I was young, I was taught two prayers. Our family went to church most weeks, but not every week, and that's about as far as our faith journey went as a family. <clears throat> so when I prayed, it was one of these two prayers at very specific times. And maybe you'll understand the rich theological depth of these two prayers like I did as a child. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. The second prayer was very much like it for different situations entirely. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. That's how I pronounced it as a kid, so it rhymed. By his hands we are fed. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. Amen. I was always very confused with that prayer. Why it was so out of order? Because we talked about being, God being great first, and then we talked about him being good. And I was always thinking the good came before great. And it always seemed weird to me that we would say, God is great, but he's also good. In case he missed it the first time or something, I don't know. But eventually I came to understand that good and great were not used in that same way. They weren't levels in the way that we use them. Tony the Tiger never said that his frosted flakes were good. You know, he never said they were fair or midland. He said they were great. So that's the, you may agree with that. That's the, uh, but that's the way that I always saw great as being better than good. And it was on that same that same track of goodness. You have okay, you have bad, you know, then not great, okay, fair, good, great. But greatness doesn't really refer to that, that in that same way when you talk about God. Although he is great in that way, he is better than good, but he's also good. Greatness refers to his magnitude. It's used to describe the magnitude of his power. But it's also used to, to describe his, the magnitude of his other character traits, like mercy. In his great mercy. In Numbers 14, 19, in the King James Version, it says this. It says, Pardon, I beseech thee the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy. And as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. In the New International Version, it says, In accordance with your great love, forgive the sins of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. But in other words, what Moses is saying to God is he is saying, display how big your mercy is by showing some to these rebellious people. Jesus made a comment about the magnitude of God's love in John 15, 13. It says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. He's not just talking about better love. He's talking about the magnitude of love. One of the things that's important for us to understand is, um, is we understand magnitudes of love because of the people that we're around, right? You know, we love our neighbor. We love humans in general. 
but we love our family more. We love our spouse and our kids very much more. Where if we had to make a decision about um, if there were two of them that we had to choose between in a life or death situation, it would be a tough situation, but in many cases not as tough as we would make it out to be. So we're talking about the greatness of love, and we're talking about God's greatness in general. It's important that we keep in mind that when we're talking about greatness in the sense that the Bible usually refers to it, it is an order of magnitude of what our character trait is talking about. In Psalm 145.3, it says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. In other words, no one can plumb the depths of, that, of, that, of his name, of the magnitude of his, his love, of his greatness, of his character. It says the Lord is great, and he is the most worthy of praise. He is most worthy of praise. You may hear from people, and maybe you've had this thought yourself, or maybe you still have this thought, where people say, I don't want to serve a narcissistic or um, egotistical God. Have you heard that? I heard somebody, uh, I've heard that multiple times from people over the course, especially the last few years. And I finally heard somebody make a, a great statement. He said, it's not egotism if you're actually worth what you're asking of people. God is not a narcissist because he sees himself exactly as he really is. A narcissist is deluded. That is the, the virtue of narcissism. They think they are more powerful than they are. They think they're um, not necessarily better. It's not necessarily, uh, narcissism is necessarily about being better, although most of the times it is or it comes across that way. But God is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all good. He is worthy of our praise. So he cannot be a narcissist. He cannot be egotistical. John Piper, this is a great statement. John Piper said, God made man small and the universe big to say something about himself. God talks about creating the world and he talks about how, how he holds the universe in his hand. We have no idea how big the universe is, and it keeps it getting bigger. But I have a feeling that no matter how big the universe gets, God's still going to be able to hold it in his hand. He made man small and the universe big to say something about himself. God's greatness cannot be measured or even imagined. When Psalm 145.3, we just read, says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. It means it's beyond imagination. I love this quote by David Jeremiah, um, which I did not put up there. Don't panic. <laughs> but I have it in my office. It says we cannot worship that which fits comfortably in our conceptions. We cannot worship that which fits comfortably in our conceptions. In other words, if you think that you have God figured out and you think that, um, that you have a sense of how big he is, then your God is much too small. The more I study God, the more I spend time with him over the course of the last several decades, the more I get to know him personally and intimately as well as um, through study. He keeps getting bigger and he keeps getting bigger and he keeps getting bigger and he keeps getting better and he keeps getting better and he keeps getting better. 
And according to this passage, according to this verse in Psalm 145, I'll never get to the point where God says, well, that's it. You've seen all of me. And that's a great thing. Our minds are feeble. God's greatness cannot be measured. And it cannot be imagined. That's how great he is. But we don't only need to remember his greatness, but also his goodness. The goodness of God is the source of all of his provisions and all of his blessings of salvation and even of the promise of eternity. Psalm 109, 21 says, But you, sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. I love this, that he says so, so much here. He says you, he's talking to God directly, sovereign Lord, which means God who is autonomous, self-governing. It refers to his majesty. He calls him the Lord, his Lord. And he said, help me for your name's sake. Have you ever asked God to do something for you so that he looks better? We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. In 2 Peter 1, 3, we see where it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Why did He call us? Why did he call us? He called us to glorify himself. And out of his own glory he called us. And also out of his goodness. Because as we know, we do not deserve anything from God other than wrath. But he called us. And what kind of stuff does he call us? He calls us heirs. He calls us his bride. He calls us his adopted children. We're not just servants. We're not just people that have read about him or heard about him or know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who knows God. So let's go to Psalm 86. This is where we're going to keep revisiting. This is our key passage, um, Psalm 86. It says, Hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am devoted to you. You're my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You are forgiving and good, Lord, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. In the day of trouble I will call to you, for you will answer me. Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For your great and do marvelous deeds, you alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord God, 
with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths of the grave. The arrogant are attacking me, O God. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, men without regard for you. But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Give me a sign of your goodness, that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. A.W. Tozer says, With the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare, the wisdom of God to plan it, and the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? Surely we are the most favored of all creatures. So what does God's greatness and goodness mean for us? Well, his greatness and his goodness, they prompt us to call to him. First of all, to call to him. Psalm 3, 4 says, I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. Knowing that God hears us when we call, and that he desires to answer us, should motivate us to call out to him. He is our provider, protector, father, and friend. Let's go back and look at the first five verses, Psalm 86, 1 through 5. He says, Hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am devoted to you. You're my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call to you. This psalm is simply called a prayer of David. But it's unique. There are other psalms that are called a prayer of David. It's unique in the, in the way that David refers to God as Adonai seven times, and Adonai means master. In other words, he's saying, God, you're the one that I submit to. You're the one that I serve. That is a statement of greatness. This is the king talking to his master. He is recognizing God's greatness and referring to him that way, but is recognizing God's goodness by calling out to him. He recognizes God's greatness by referring to him as his master, but he recognizes God's goodness simply by calling out to him. We have a lot of problems with trusting our authorities today, don't we? Well earned, in many cases, might I add. And it makes it hard for us to, um, to think of who I need to call when I'm in trouble. Some of us have friends or family members that if there's something we need, we know who to call. We know who to go to. We know who to ask advice for. We know um, who we can depend on to give us a hand with something that we need. I have my list of people that if I'm working on something at the house or on the car, I know who to ask. 
They have tools I can borrow. They have skills. So often they will come over and help me with it or, um, or teach me how to do it. On any number of things, I've been able to do that, um, especially the last few months. But there is nobody who can defeat my depression. Nobody who can conquer my anxiety. Nobody who can stir my grief into forgiveness like God can do it. I, can, I have people that I can ask for insight and wisdom. I can go to for counsel. But there are times when only calling out to God will work. So in Psalm 145, 18 to 20, he says, The Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him. But all the wicked will destroy. Do you see that the people of the world are divided only into two categories? Do you realize that? There are those who love God and those who will be destroyed by Him. There's your evangelism method. That is not necessarily to go and to, talk, to tell a bunch of people. Not in that way. But this is an indicator for us to recognize that God has called us out. He calls us to himself, and in response, he wants us to call on him. He calls, we call back. When we need something, we call him, he answers us back. That is a relationship with the Most High God. David begins Psalm 86 with a plea for God to hear him. He begins by acknowledging who God is before acknowledging who he is. This is similar to Jesus' model for us in Matthew 6 and what has come to be known as the Lord's Prayer. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When Jesus gives us this model prayer, he says this is how you should approach things when you're talking to the Father. Recognize who he is, our Father in heaven. His name is holy. When he says, hallowed be your name, we're saying, I recognize that your name is holy. Your name is unlike any other name. As you move your kingdom on earth, do your will on earth in the same way that you do it in heaven. He is recognizing that God has authority over heaven and earth and that he can move it any way he wants to. And that's what Jesus is saying. Recognize this when you go to the Father and ask him to move. Why do we ask God to move on earth the way he does in heaven? Because God changes us to be prepared 
to go where he sends us, to do what he calls us, to let go of the things that we grip tightly that hinder God's desire for us, our desire for God, our love for other people, the things that so easily ensnare us. When we are praying and recognizing God for who he is in his greatness and saying, move on earth the way you do in heaven, have absolute control, then we're also saying, and put me in my place of how that kingdom is to move. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In other words, and I need to be forgiven. I recognize this, that I need to be forgiven, and I need to forgive other people. And then he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one because you're the only one who can do it. When we look at the Lord's Prayer, that is an admission of who God is, an admission of who we are. And that's exactly how David starts off in Psalm 86. Hear, O Lord, and answer me. I'm poor and needy. Guard my life. I'm devoted to you. You're my God. Save your servant because I trust in you. Save your servant who trusts in you. Have mercy on me, O Lord, because you can do that. For I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant because you can do that. For it's you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I lift up my soul and say, do, with, do something with this because I can't bear the weight. But you can. You can fix it. You can fill it up with joy. I can't do it. I look around and see everything that's going on around me. I see the people who do not like me, the people who are coming after me. I can't find joy in that, but you can give me joy. You can give me that joy. You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call on you, parentheses, and that's me. I'm calling on you. And why am I calling on you? Because you're forgiving and good. And you abound in love to those who call on me, who call on you. So I am. Donald Miller, he says, if we knew how much God loved us and was for us, we'd talk to him all day long. We have to recognize God's greatness, and we have to recognize his goodness. So recognizing his greatness and goodness prompts us to call to him. It prompts us to cry to him. David here is crying out to God for relief from his hardship. In this case, he is again asking for God to rescue him from his enemies. As I looked at commentaries on Psalm 86, and what was the case of, of when he wrote this? They can't be specific with which one it is, because David was being chased so often for such a long time. And he wrote so many psalms asking God to rescue him from his enemies that they can't pinpoint exactly which one this was. That's how David's life went. Years and years, that was his life. So where does he go? He goes to the only God who can actually do something to save him, to punish his enemies, to destroy his enemies, or if nothing else, to give him joy and let him know that he was not alone but God was with him. Whatever you have for me, God, was his prayer. Just any crumbs from the table, just anything. 
David here is crying out to God. So let's look at verses 6 through 14. He says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. In the day of my trouble, I will call to you. Why? Because you'll answer me. I will call to you, for you will answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. This is a hard one to pray. Give me an undivided heart. Now I fear your name. You ever worried what God was going to shave off if you told him to give you an undivided heart? That's a bold prayer. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths of the grave. The arrogant are attacking me, O God. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, men without regard for you. He is proclaiming the situation that he's in, and he's saying, God, I'm, I'm, I love you. I worship you. The gods that are after me don't. And the, people, the gods that they cry out to are rock and wood and brass. But you're the living God. When I cry out to you, you answer me. Crying out invites God to be our solution. Crying out to God invites him to be our solution. We may go to friends and family or to a counselor or a doctor, but there's only so much they can do. We should not neglect inviting God into whatever we're going through. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but is God your first resource in a hard time? An old woodsman gives this advice about catching a porcupine. He said, watch for the slapping tail as you dash in and drop a large washtub over him. The washtub will give you something to sit on while you ponder your next move. <laughs> trying to wrestle our own problems into submission is a lot like trying to catch a porcupine. The best thing we can do is sit down at the feet of Jesus and say, what now? That's a good starting point. Approach God first, sit at his feet, and ponder what's next. In Psalm 34, 17, it says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. We're familiar with Philippians 4, 6, 6 and 7. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He's done. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So recognizing God's greatness and His goodness, it prompts us to call out to Him, it prompts us to cry to Him, and it prompts us to come to Him.
James 4.8. It says, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. If you go and look at all of James 4, he talks about conflict between people. He's talking about um, fights and arguments and quarrels and who deserves what and who should get what and who is right. And his response to all of that is to come near to God. Come near to God and he will come near to you. As we approach God, we wash our hands, purify our hearts, and we asked God already in prayer, David asked him, give me an undivided heart. And James says, you're double-minded. I was really proud of our, of our youth on Wednesday night. Because we, you guys, if you've ever been in the, other, in the office building, there's a lot that's going on there. Um, we have a, a chalkboard up there. It's called the Wailing Wall. And your prayer requests are up on that wall. Anytime you go over there, if you come to the office or a ladies' Bible study or the men's prayer breakfast or whatever, feel free to grab a piece of chalk out of the little basket um, that's stuck on the wall by the wailing wall and write your prayer request, and we will pray for you. So Wednesday night, as is often the case, it was very quiet when it came to prayer time. All right, who's going to pray out loud? Yeah, like that. So I said, don't be a chicken and pray to God on behalf of your friends. And they stepped up. It was great. They were tripping over each other to pray for people. I'd never seen that. It happened multiple times. My turn, my turn to pray. It was great. And I'll expect it more. All right, so... Um, but, but getting our eyes on Christ and focus and, um, and going to the Lord in prayer is important for us. And it's not always comfortable and sometimes it's awkward and sometimes it feels weird and we think we're writing a speech to God, but that's not what God wants from us. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to call out to him. He wants us to cry to him. He wants us to come to him. In verses 15 to 17 of Psalm 86, it says, You, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So turn to me and have mercy on me. When he says turn to me, he's saying look at me. Pay attention to me. Grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. He said, give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. He said, just show me something. Give me something that lets me know that you are answering me, that you're paying attention to me, that you notice me. Not just for me, but so that your name will be glorified among those who have always ignored you. And that they will feel the shame of not recognizing who you are. God tells us to come to him so that we can reflect his goodness and draw others to him. 
In Matthew 5, 13 to 16, it says, You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, the secret to all this is that our good deeds are not our own, but they are God's work in us. When we come to God with our needs, and when he gives us peace, we can answer the questions of others with one simple word. Jesus. Why are you at such peace with what you're going through in your life? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. We're at peace with our diagnosis because of Jesus. We're faithful in our work because of Jesus. We do not get overly concerned about the world because of Jesus. N.T. Wright says, it's not great faith that you need. It is faith in a great God. We often ask for great faith. But we ask for great faith in a small God because we don't know him. Because we have never given him the opportunity to invest in us the way he wants to invest in us. We've all seen God do some amazing things because we know each other. As my professor, my systematic theology professor said in seminary, he said, the beauty of the church is that our own understanding of God is enriched by the experiences of others. My faith is strengthened because of the way you deal with your diagnosis. Whether God heals you miraculously or whether he gives you a great team to heal you, God is involved in all that. When you face hardship in your family and we pray together and you tell me the story, you tell us the story as things go, as things go, as things go, we watch God put the pieces back together or make the moves for his glory and as a boost to our faith. And he can do that. So I urge you, call to the Lord. Cry to the Lord. And come to the Lord for whatever burdens you have and let him take care of it. His goodness means he wants to. But his greatness means he's able to.